Good morning, Lakeside. I appreciate those few that can be here this morning, but uh, more so those that are watching this tape. Uh, This reminds me of a time back a number of years ago, about 25 years ago. uh, The last time I did something like this, I was going through seminary, and they needed us to make a tape of our preaching. And so we would then send it around to various churches or whatever. And pr- preferably you'd do it in front of a, a large crowd and um, have kind of have that interaction going on. Uh, but uh, I wasn't able to do that. And so I had asked our church, at that time was Brandon Presbyterian Church, uh, if we could maybe set up the camera and, and just do, let me do a sermon to the, uh, the entire, I mean, no congregation there, but just to the empty room. And they said, sure, come over in some evening and do it. And so that evening, my wife, Vicki, and I went there. And, of course, she would set up the camera up in the, up in the, uh, uh, the balcony. And I would be up there preaching. And she would sit next to it. And every so often, she'd rustle a page or something like that. So it would sound like there was at least somebody else in the room. And then I preached for 30 minutes or whatever to an empty room. I think we still have that, that tape around somewhere. But we sent that VHS around to, to very, various places. Uh, so it's kind of like that now. There are a few folks here. It's the same thing. My wife is here and my son, with the help of Gary Nally and some others, are here uh, filming this thing. So I guess some things change and some things don't change uh, that much. And uh, we've got my daughter, Michaela, here, who said, I can't remember if she was here for the last one or not. Uh, but anyway, so it's, it's an honor to be able to share with you. Um, we're here doing this today for, for a couple of reasons. I think we're all well aware of them. Uh, certainly, we want to honor our leaders in, in the nation as they are trying to. Um, make this entire process as safe as possible. But also, it's an act of love. We, we care about our people. Um, we, we love one another, and though it seems almost um, counterintuitive, this is the best way to express that. And so, indeed, um, as we often say on Sunday morning, you really are at the right place at the right time, wherever you are right now. And so, and so our prayers are certainly in every way uh, that you're safe. I had a couple of people come up to me and said, I assume we're still going to have donuts. Uh, I said, no. Um, on the other hand, we probably won't take an offering today. So, uh, but either way, um, we are doing church uh, church this day. Um, we have been working through the book of James for the last six weeks or so. And interestingly enough, the present circumstances uh, that we are involved in um, are not all that alien to the concerns of the brother of Jesus. As we have mentioned before, um, there was a time of persecution in the early church. Uh, We're told a little bit about it early in Acts, um, where Stephen was doing a great job ministering the gospel and preaching the gospel. And then there was, he was stoned. And then there a great persecution arose because of that. And it says that the, um, the disciples pretty much stayed in Jerusalem, but most of the people scattered throughout the regions of Samaria and Judea. And some think this might be the time that James, as the brother of Jesus, wrote this wisdom. And of course, um, at the heart of this, it's all about how do we live in this world as believers? Because we, we sort of live in what theologians have since called something, uh, have called the already and the not yet. Uh, what that means is already some incredible things have happened, but other things are still yet to come. Christ has come, He is risen, the Spirit has fallen, death is defeated, we are a new creation now, the kingdom of God has come. 
We have been raised with Christ where he is at the right hand of God the Father. But also, there's still sin. We die. There is a power of death. And the devil's still out there doing his thing. And so we still look forward to that what's not yet. We look forward to the resurrection. The death of death. Death being swallowed up in victory. The kingdom in all its fullness. The new creation in all of its fullness. And Christ's people to be perfected. But in between these times, we have to live by faith. And so James actually begins his great epistle. He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. And the church would encounter various trials. They may be big picture trials like the persecution of the church. But they're also the trials of fighting among each other and the passions that wage war within us. But he says, count it all joy. And as Tyson shared a number of weeks ago, it doesn't mean you become giddy over it, but it means you put these things in the category of things that you rejoice over ultimately because they're meaningful. He says that this is the testing of our faith. It produces steadfastness. And that steadfastness would eventually make us perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And so as he begins to process, process this entire thought throughout James, that's where he starts from. And he says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. And he will give it to you liberally. And we ask God wisdom in many ways, but primarily we ask it through his word. And through the James' teaching, I think James is pretty much saying, I'm going to give you the wisdom by which we live in this life. And so he talked about the tongue, how to correct it and, and train it and do, uh, try to um, um, make it obedient to the will of God. He talked about true religion. It's a religion that keeps oneself unstained from the world, meaning holiness, and it's one that loves one another. He talked about how you live with favoritism. He talked a lot about works and how the works of God, the works should be reflected in our faith. Otherwise, faith always gives rise to Faithful, uh, faithfulness. He talked about how we deal with um, one another. When we argue, it's always about jealousy, selfish ambition, and our passions. Paul doesn't have any sympathy for anybody being a victim. He says, when you fight, this is what's going on. These are waging war among you. He says, we ought to control our calendars under the guidance of the Spirit. That God is in control of our lives, it ought to be of our time. And ultimately, as we shared last week, he sees there are oppressors out there. We ought not to act like them. And we ought to know well that one day God who sees these things will judge that oppression. And at that time, we begin, he begins our, the last section of James that we are going to begin with today. And so I'm going to sing, I'm sorry, I'm going to read uh, James chapter 5 Verses 7 through 20. Before that, let's go ahead and say a prayer. Father, we thank you very much, Lord, in every way for your grace. You're a good God. And Father, we, we, we confess that we are indeed, um, um, we're fallen, we're fallible. We do things that are not right. We need the guidance and the wisdom of our God through Scripture. 
And we do pray, Father, um, that you would enlighten our eyes today. That as we bring these things together and we look in the end at what ought to be our mindset as we go about this life, you give us that wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so James writes, he says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Brethren, we know that the grass withers and that the flower fades, but the word of our God, it will stand forever. This that we have read is indeed our word of God, and for it we give thanks. In the Psalms, David writes, he says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who does evil, or do not fret over the evil that you see in the world. And this is sort of the posture that you see a lot of places in throughout the scripture of God's people, Old Testament and New Testament. Be still and see what God is going to do. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. And later it says, be still and know that I am God. And that's a good question because this exhortation um, is taken in the midst of seeing the nation's rage and seeing the things that are not supposed to happen in the world happen. This sort of already and not yet that we all live in. And he cries out and he says, God, how is this going to be fixed? And God says, be still and know that I am God. And that's really two good questions. How is it that we are to 
be still, what does that look like? And how does, us, how does that make us know God better? In 1 John, the apostle writes, he says, look, we don't know yet we're going, what we're going to look like. We, we do know that we're going to look like Jesus, but we don't quite know what that's going to look like. But if we have that hope, we seek to purify, purify ourselves. We try to live in accordance to God's word. And I think that's what James is talking about just from a different way. James is talking what, about what it means to be still, to live and an attempt to purify oneself and live holy before God. And in this, James gives two answers. So as we've gone through James, we've seen all the things um, that he has instructed us to. He now says, okay, here's two more things that ought to, in a sense, embrace everything that you have heard. The first is this, patience, steadfastness. I think one man said that patience is the strong, practical application of faith. I think you can also make the argument through scriptures that patience, in many cases, is almost, if taken as believers in Christ, a different word, a different way of even speaking of faith. I mean, without patience, there really is no faith. Let's be practical, be honest. We don't like to wait. None of us do. We see that very early with children. You see children, you know, run up to mom and dad who are having a conversation with somebody else and, and, and they immediately start sharing the things they want to share. What does the parents do? They say, be quiet, wait till I'm done. Uh, be patient. Um, or something you see, I think maybe a little more now again after many years, but the idea when you're at the dinner table and we all want to eat, no, 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 wait until we say our blessing. Wait till we say our prayer. Most of us don't have much patience. It's, like, it's part of all those nine fruit of the spirit that God is working in us. We would hope that later in life we're more patient than we were earlier in life. But I don't like it. And I'm one of those people that if, if I'm sitting in a long line of cars, uh, and especially if, like, if there's an accident or something that where people have a work, road construction, I know I just have to sit there and crawl. I will pull out and go another way, even though I know it's going to be twice as long, just so I can move. I don't like just sitting there. But above all, we're impatient with the Lord. We know how things ought to happen. We know what they're supposed to, how it's supposed to look. And so we ask that great question all the time. Why, Lord? When, Lord? And yet we find out as we look at the scriptures that patience, steadfastness, staying through things, going through the process, is ultimately the perspective of eternity. Again, the wonderful text that I've drawn strength from, even though I'm, I've never suffered it or, endure, or injured in the kind of things the Apostle Paul has, but nonetheless, it encourages me. Consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. And that is so hard to do in the midst of our small temptations or in the, in the midst of the big trials that we have, whether they be persecution, 
whether we see our culture going to pot, whether it's viruses that we fear, whether the fight's between us, we're impatient in the dealings of the Lord. And yet, that ends up being the very thing God wills for our life. Here's a good question. How long are we to be patient? I mean, what ought our expect, expectations be in any given thing that we go through? I would suspect that if you're being patient for something and then God gives you the answer, that might not even be the end of the work. God may have more in that area that he wants to develop in you. But if you look at verses 7 and 8 that we had just read, Paul says this, Be patient, therefore, meaning all this stuff we've talked about in James, be patient now, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. How long are we to be patient? Well, ultimately, our patience and the work it's supposed to work within us is not developed and final until the coming of our Lord. It's interesting that he then gives a, a, an example of it. Uh, someone who has a different perspective than a lot of us. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so he says, what is the process that we're all interested in? What is it that we want to see happen in our lives? James says it ought to be that your hearts are established at the coming of the Lord, which and he said, there could be very much right at hand. Some ask question, debate whether James is talking about something on their immediate horizon or he's looking to the end of creation, uh, the end of time, that he's saying essentially that we always live in light of the coming of the Lord. What he says here is that the process matters. He uses the farmer as an example. We all understand enough farming here. He says the early rain and the late rain. This is sort of the, 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 the ends of the whole um, seed to harvest uh, process. But the farmer knows that. He's been trained to know that. No farmer plants a seed and comes out the next day and says, now where's the harvest? They all understand the process has to happen. But the process is actually the means of the transformation. But when we get in our lives, it's very quickly, that's the last thing we want. We want the transformation. We want the change. We want the thing now. Instead, as it says in verse 9, he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door also. How do we process our impatience in life? As we live in a difficult world, that is not easy, that we're looking forward to something better one day. We have incredible blessings now, but now we're going through all kinds of things. What do we tend to do? We tend to fight with one another. And I think that's when you get back to earlier things James says, when you guys fight, it's all about you guys warring with yourself. It's your passions, it's your own desires. It's not, and no one's righteous in these things. He says, this is what we want to do. 
we want to fight when things, we, when we get scared, when things aren't going right. I, and, and it's not exactly the same thing, but we've all seen enough of the pictures in the last uh, few days of the way some people act and when they're trying to, to get the same thing at the grocery store. I think somebody once said that when skunks get scared, they stink. Um, when people get scared, we stink. And it's not always a lot different in the church. We start being fearful for our own stuff. We can get pretty stinky. But the point here is that who's at the door is the judge. Because all of our grumbling against one another as we are waiting for our judge is that it's ultimate grumbling against God. When the people grumbled against Moses, Moses told God, he said, it's not you they're grumbling against, it's me. And there was judgment. Verse 10 goes on and says, as an example of suffering and patience. Now, I do want to note here, suffering and patience. In James's mind, the patience involves suffering. Waiting two minutes isn't really hard to do unless for two minutes you can't breathe. You're waiting for a breath. Then it's really hard to do. Patience is not always easy when we are suffering. And so he says in, in, in uh, verse 10 there, he says, as an example of suffering and patience, brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. In Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, and many things, James, in fact, you can see many of the things James says are actually taken from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are you when you are persecuted, you are spoken of evil falsely, uh, and falsely accused on account of me. He says, rejoice, or as James would have said, count it all joy. Rejoice. Your reward is great because you're just like the prophets. And so he says, the prophets of old, they suffered, they were persecuted, and they were patient. In one place he says they were so patient, what they looked on for was the day that we have. Now we're in that day, and we look forward to the next great day, the return of Christ. And so as a prophet, he gives another example here in verse 11. He says, behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. I think everybody who's listening to me right now knows the story of Job. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. When you look at the Bible and you decide to call people blessed, you don't usually think about it in a big sense because they were delivered in some way. I mean, there's a blessing there. Um, if somebody's healed, I, I guess you would say they're blessed. If, 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 if somebody got the job, they're blessed. If somebody um, became king, I guess they're blessed. Um, but, and even in our language, we often speak that way. When something good happens, it goes, I've been blessed. But really, when we study the stories of Scripture, we call those blessed who are steadfast. In the great chapter, the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11, we have a list of the people of God that live by faith, but when you see their faith, it always looked like faithfulness. And some of them um, conquered kingdoms, and others were sawn in two. 
Many received back their dead. Others died. But where they're all the same is that they live by faith in very real practical ways, and we call them all blessed. Joseph is blessed, not because he just became the big guy at the end, because he's faithful. That's what we look for. Moses is blessed because of his faithfulness. Paul was blessed because of his faithfulness. That's why we call him blessed. It's interesting there. It says, because many of us know the story of Job. If you know the story well, you know it's not, it's not a story about getting what you want. Although at the end, he got sevenfold of everything. But the story is that we would see the purpose of God in it. And the purpose of God was our Lord is compassionate and he is merciful. And in the end, all of our steadfastness, our patience, in the end, the big picture is that God's compassionate and he's merciful. And it will well be worth it. And then he ends with the words in verse 12. And it sort of grabs your attention because you kind of wonder, how does this fit? But he says, above all, all all, above all my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by um, or any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. He's again quoting from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus exhorted them not to swear by heaven, not to swear by God, not to swear by the temple, not to swear by the hairs on their head. And I'd say this is a different way we use our mouth when we are going through this work of patience and we're not doing very well with it. Sometimes we grumble with others, but often what we do is we profane the name of God. Let's be honest, very often our mouth slips first. Or I don't know, our heart slips first, but our mouth is the first thing to reveal it. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth will always speak. And in the midst of our, it says, in the midst of all the things we go through, um, God calls us to have integrity of speech, that we are to be truthful people. In one place, the apostle Paul writes, he says, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. That's what the tongue is good for, to bring encouragement and life. But very often, as James says, we can pray and bless God with our mouth and then turn around and curse our brother who's made in the image of God. And we all do that really, really well. And so it's interesting here in the midst of this exhortation on patience, above all in the midst of this, Guard that tongue. See what it tells you about your heart. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. We do it different ways. In some ways, we curse with it. Some ways that what we've done, which has been kind of popular in some years in the church now for a while, is use it to, um, use of God as almost a talisman to get us out of all of our problems or many of our problems. And all of that would be a misuse of that God's name. And instead, he says, simply be people where your word is your bond and what you say, people can trust. You're that kind of person. It's an issue of character moving through our time here and our patience. So patience is the first thing. The second thing he, he talks about is that we're moving through this life of wisdom that James gives us. We're being patient until the Lord comes. He says, here's the other thing. We're to be in prayer until the Lord comes that we are to be in prayer. 
Here we get to see a really big picture. In the end, prayer is all about whether or not you believe what's going on is a spiritual matter. Whatever goes on in your life, do you really believe God's hand is in it or is he sometimes in and out and he can't get in? Prayer is the mark of that because you constantly bring your things to God in prayer. Talking about what are, what, what are the issues here? In the midst of our waiting, God certainly invites us. And I wrote it to, it's interesting, something here. I said, to understand the plan. And I crossed out understand because that's not what I want to say. He doesn't invite us to understand all these things, but to be at peace in them. The Bible is actually pretty expressive when it says that there's very little we understand. We understand the big picture. He's compassionate. He's merciful. But we mess up so much to get to that road, and it's just the grace of God. In fact, in one place, Paul says, the problem with us is we do not know what to pray. Forget how to pray. We don't even know what to pray for. We've talked about this before. I know what I'm always praying for. But God has different plans. Prayer by definition, just very act of it, is faith in God's power and his love. And so in verse 13, he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Remember that phrase of your, the prophets of old? Suffering and patience. Is any among you suffering in your patience? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. It is interesting that we understand, I think, the praying and the suffering... I guess we also understand the singing of praise when, when, when things are cheerful. Um, we, we, we pray, we suffer, we go to our God, we say, God, what do we do? Um, how, how, do we, how, how, how do I process what's going on in my life? Prayer changes God. It changes our circumstances. I think C.S. Lewis is the one famous for saying, I, I do not understand how God does it. I don't get everything I pray for. I know when I pray, things happen. I would say grace happens. And I think that would be the extent of every Christian's um, true understanding. Um, the world doesn't like it. Um, recently, I think when they started with their, they started with the, uh, uh, put together the coronavirus task force, um, our vice president, uh, we have a, they sent out a picture of them about a week, a week or so ago in which the entire task force were bowing their heads and praying before what was happening. And it was amazing how many people mocked it and didn't like it and hated it. And then, you know, made, said things, oh, you don't believe in science and whatever. And it's a different worldview. Things happen. And we both believe in science, believers and unbelievers. We both believe in all kinds of things that we have in contact. But in the end, we also believe in a sovereign God who asks people to call upon him and that we are to pray for the good of the city, Jeremiah was told. And like Abraham, who would pray for the cities that were coming under judgment, we would be a part of that. Because we don't want to see the judgment. We want to see God's mercy. We pray when we suffer. In the midst of all of our sufferings, the prophets prayed, we should. When we're cheerful, we sing praise. I think there's two ways we can understand that. One is 
we sometimes are thankless. We don't understand where the good things God gives us that makes us cheerful. And so we ought to, again, make them God-centered. God says, I gave you the power to make wealth. And one of the things he told Israel is, you're going to forget this. But you shouldn't. The thankless heart is an abomination. But I also think it's when we come out of prayer, God will bring comfort. And then we say, and it will change the heart. And in that cheerfulness, we should be praising. And then it goes on to say in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. We're going to go on to verse 20. Uh, 15 to 20. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And he has, when, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous man or the righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will, have, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins." We're reading that big chunk together because I think it's one essential thought. There is some ambiguity. I think it's intentional. Some read this and see um, sick people who get healed. Some see it as distressed, afflicted people only. And this is the, these are metaphors for that. And others say, and that's probably the best way to go, that there's a bigger picture here. I mean, it starts with, are you sick? And it ends with a soul being saved from death covering a multitude of sins. And so sometimes it's sort of hard to find out where the writer is, how, how he tries to run some of these things together, but we get the big point. In one place, the apostle Peter, thinking along, along the same lines as James in, another place, in, in, in a number of these things, says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And I think what you have there is indeed a um, picture of what this earnest love for one another that ultimately wants to see one another look like Christ. Which is interesting that that's what God wants to do with all of our lives. And so there are a few things to note here. The first is this. We are, as the song says, prone to wander. How does it go? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And I remember I used to have problems with that. Many, many years ago, and in my less reformed but more evangelical days, I never liked that. Prone to leave the God I love? How in the world would I ever do that? Well, now after 30 years of sanctification, I understand it. 
We are prone. We are prone not to do the many things of wisdom that James has instructed us to do. We are prone to gossip. We are prone to be justified not um, by, by and, and by um, um, not, not are not working in such a way that uh, it reflects our justification. We are prone to argue with one another and to grumble. And we're prone to go a lot worse. Many of us know backsliders rarely simply get up one day, walk out, and never come back. You just see them less and less, and slowly over time, they're gone. And somewhere down the line, you find out they said, oh, that's not important to me anymore. I think everything James says in his letter presupposes that men are sinners and that believers are sinners saved by grace. And it really has to be a good grace as we sing the song, Amazing Grace. The second thing to note here, our prayers, like our faith, although they're personal, they're not necessarily private at all times. We have lots of reason in Scripture to pray together. One of them is here is praying with the elders. There are times that we're called to pray together for the interests of the church and our culture. This, this day has actually been designated a day of prayer by the President of the United States. And when we close in our prayer here, we're going to do that. We're called to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. Most scholars, are, are the, the, the theologians, the Bible writers and whatnot, they think this is talking about the, the perennial problem in the church of our sins against one another. It's not simply dumping all, everything in our heart on anyone at any time or every thought that might be there. But we ought to, even as Paul says, when you take communion, get things right with your brethren. It's interesting how both of these talk about this can affect even our spiritual and physical health. We ought to be a people who say, I'm sorry, I repent. I didn't mean that, or I meant that, but I, I, uh, how we, whatever the situation is. Not saying every illness or spiritual affliction or mental distress are necessarily related to sin, but a lot of them are. And that we ought to be, have lives of confession and repentance, as Martin Luther said. The next thing is this. We should believe in the power of prayer. This is always the exhortation that we're given. Again, we don't believe in our understanding of the power of prayer. I think the prayer I understand the best in the scriptures are the ones, are the prayers are the ones where not my will, but thine, Lord. I think I understand that, though it's hard to process. And Paul's prayer, where the answer is, and he says many times, okay, what is your will, Lord? And he says, my grace is sufficient. And Paul says, I can take that. But things change. We change in our prayers. The prayer of God's people, indeed, as it says here in verse 16, has great power as it's working. And that we don't do it enough reflects that we don't really believe that. 
And he mentions Elijah and a thing that grabs your attention and all that because Elijah is one of the, the great heroes of scripture. And he says he is not, he, he, he's, he's just like us. He is a nature like us. The, the issue is not Elijah as a person. We're all like Elijah. There's other issues. He prayed earnestly. He prayed fervently and incredible things happened. He stopped the rain and he started the rain. He's not saying that we all have that kind of prayer power. There's something unique to the prophets and the apostles. But the point is, it accomplishes much. And I think this is really the last thing on prayer that we would say here this morning. I encourage you to avail yourself of this particular means of grace, allowing the elders to be a part of your life. To understand, now we, we've had through, through the years, many people avail themselves of this that have called because of physical needs, emotional and spiritual needs. And the elders as a session, they've done it as, um, as uh, smaller groups, they've come and they've prayed. The, the, the picture here seems to be that when things get pretty bad, it says call the elders. Um, these, they would obviously use whatever medicine they could avail themselves of. The apostle told Timothy, drink a little wine with your frequent ailments, not just water, implying that would be better for you physically. But he says there's a time that you might need to go talk and have prayer. Our elders understand that they are not simply an executive board of directors making decisions. They have to make decisions, but that's not what they are. They're overseers and shepherds of a flock that they're going to give accountability, to, accountable, be accountable for before their God. As we will be accountable, all of us as a congregation, on how we respond to them and obey them. They know their calling. And I think Paul is pointing out here that God respects the authority. As fallen and fallible as it is, he respects the authority he establishes. And when we go in for that ministry, there is a true grace there. Well, brethren, we asked the question at the beginning, what does it mean to be still before the Lord? It means that we live by faith that the James speaks of, patiently, prayerfully, always loving one another. If we do this, then the other side, be still and you will know God. Let's pray together. And as we do, we're going to pray a little, uh, little more extensively just for um, our nation and our church and the world with this terrible um, virus that God will give, be merciful. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you. Um, we come before you uh, before the throne of mercy and grace, having no right in ourselves to come before you. There, there's, um, but we need these things. You are a God of mercy and we need mercy. And our prayer is very simple in the limited, limitedness of our knowledge, realizing that you have your plan, we would pray that you would stop this pandemic and you would save lives. Many places where you speak of things that are um, men mean for evil, but you ultimately mean them for good. The purpose is to save and preserve lives, ultimately eternally. And so we pray 
for this, your mercy in this. In our community here at Brandon, throughout our country and throughout the world, particularly in places that are unequipped medically to deal with some of these things. Lord, make us thankful. Whatever we want to whine and complain about, we have such blessings from you. Um, over the things that we are having to deal with. You are a good God. You have blessed this nation uh, mightily. We pray for our leaders, our president, and the other government leaders, international, federal, state, all of them, Father, local. They have to make decisions, and uh, we pray, Father, they make them graciously, they make them wisely, give them wisdom, the best courses that will prevent um, hurt and death. And, Father, you have told us in the Scriptures that we are to teach that, we, that, that uh, you are to teach us to number our days, and we pray for that. So we would do that carefully, that we can develop the wisdom of, in, in our hearts. We pray that this time in which there is fear, um, that it becomes a time of the proper kind of um, uh, reflection, and that it becomes a foundation um, of no, knowing so much more about who you are. We also pray that we have a sense in which we can see how easily this world is shaken. And in that, Father, um, we would grab hold of something that cannot be shaken, your great kingdom. Let us see, Father, indeed how life is fragile, that there is a real eternity and that, Father, we pray that grace works in such a way that through this um, particular event, this judgment, that ultimately many, many come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the words that come from James. The price that he paid, he was ultimately martyred for the things he believed. Father, help us to believe them. Help us indeed to reflect upon um, the studies we've done through James in the last weeks. And then today, Father, that we do it with patience and with prayer, always loving one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.